March 12th edition of the We Tackle Life podcast. I'm Bruce Hooley. Thanks for joining us. If you're watching on Facebook or watching on Twitter, appreciate it very much. We're going to talk a little Ohio State basketball, a little Indiana basketball because Indiana lost and, you know, I never tire of that. And talk about an agenda, a movement, an endeavor that Ohio State athletes are supporting, uh, asking the NCAA to do something and that will take us right into the faith portion of our podcast. So a lot to talk about as the Buckeyes yesterday took care of Minnesota in the second round of the Big Ten basketball tournament. I know it was Ohio State's opener, but it was the second round of the tournament. Today they get Purdue at 2 o'clock, and uh, we'll discuss a little bit of that matchup for those of you who are listening to this as a pregame show of sorts before the approximate, I'm going to say, 2.15 tip. Today, between Purdue and Ohio State, yesterday's game got uh, underway about then. First, a reminder, of course, Hemisphere Coffee Roasters Bourbon Barrel Coffee, Bourbon Barrel Aged Coffee. It is the newest flavor from Hemisphere, so you can go to HemisphereCoffeeRoasters.com and order your own whole bean roast K-Cup Bourbon Barrel Aged Coffee. Not sure if they have it in K-Cups yet. That's a little bit more involved of a process. Hunter's Blend, House Blend, Java Blues, Jamaica Me Crazy, all the great flavors from Hemisphere across many, many, many different taste spectrums. So Hemisphere Coffee Roasters, a loyal sponsor of the We Tackle Life podcast, and we want you to become repeat customers and continue to use the promo code We Tackle Life in all caps. So you get your 15% off, and <laughs> you get the best coffee that you'll ever get because it's coming from Indonesia, Nicaragua, Thailand, Ethiopia, countries around the world. Paul and Grace engaged in uh, missionary work for years, and they have a love for coffee and a love for people, and the... Orders that you place at Hemisphere go to further coffee operations around the world, and that fuels the local economy in those areas. It's a great way for the capitalism that we have enjoyed that's made America a great country and has raised people out of poverty in this country can do the same in other countries. So capitalism good, Hemisphere Coffee Roasters, phenomenal. HemisphereCoffeeRoasters.com. Promo code we tackle life in all caps. All right, Buckeyes get a win yesterday. After the game, Chris Holtman, C.J. Walker, Justice Suing, the three people that we had access to, all took the approach, as I wrote on PressProsMagazine.com, of they all took the attitude of a traffic cop at a traffic jam. Move along, nothing to see here. Yes, I know, we're up 13 nothing at the start. And yes, I know, we're up 12 with a minute 38 left. And yes, I know, Minnesota got it to 1 with 15 seconds to go and had a shot to tie it after EJ Liddell made two free throws, but move along, nothing to see here. This is not indicative of the fact that we struggled to close out games. This is not indicative of the fact that our offense is not back to its efficiency level where it operated when Ohio State won seven in a row and rose to number four in the country. Move along. Nothing to see here. Well, I cannot move along because I think there's a lot to see there, and I'll be anxious to see if today at 2.15-ish we get the same Ohio State basketball team that we've gotten in the last three weeks or we get the Ohio State basketball team that was looked like a number one seed in the NCAA tournament. There were good things yesterday. Balanced scoring is good. Five guys in double figures, very good. Still no appreciable contribution from Justin Arns, even though he returned to the starting lineup yesterday. Justin did not have a good day offensively. And down the stretch, and this is where I can't move along because there is something to see here, Ohio State struggles to close out games and has one other issue that has come up and is a bad issue to have, as a basketball team, it goes extended stretches without scoring. 13 nothing against Minnesota. A tired team, an injured team. That should have been boot on the neck time. And instead, Ohio State goes four straight turnovers, four-plus minutes without scoring, and Minnesota's right back in the game. And then at the end of the game, make your free throws. Don't turn it over. Don't miss layups. Again, Ohio State goes 
There weren't four minutes, so you know they can't go four minutes without scoring, but they go possession, possession, possession. Justice Suing misses two free throws. It's just, and this should not happen to an experienced basketball team. C.J. Walker is a fifth-year point guard. Dwayne Washington is a third-year guard and a two-year starter. Justice Suing is a fourth-year player in college basketball. E.J. Liddell is a sophomore, but he's played a lot. Kyle Young's a senior. He's played a ton. This is an experienced basketball team, and this is one that I'm just out of patience with. It's brain-dead gaps in scoring, and it's inexplicable inability to close out basketball games when you have the nation's leading free throw shooter in C.J. Walker and a guy in Dwayne Washington at the other guard who shoots over 80%. Close the game out and stop letting teams back in games, whether it's the first half or whether it's the second half. Play with hunger, play with passion, play with wisdom, and put teams away. Very frustrating to watch Ohio State do this kind of stuff. A game-in and game-out problem. How did they lose to Northwestern in Evanston? Fell in love with the three late in the game, didn't score, let Northwestern come back. How did they lose at home to Purdue? Ahead, kept shooting threes, weren't disciplined, lost on a three at the end. How did they lose to Illinois? Four-point lead at the end, final 340, 0 for 10 from the field. How many times they get it in the paint? Maybe once. How many times they shoot threes? Four or five. It's over and over and over again. And Chris Holtman can't go out there and tackle guys and tell them what to do. They're old enough they ought to know. I know he's telling them not to do what they're doing, and yet they keep doing it. So it's really frustrating. And I think at this point in time, it's silly to think they're not going to do it again because this is who they are. Now, they're not exclusively just this. They're also capable of being a very efficient basketball team. And they're also capable of defending pretty well. And they're also capable of having a deep team where, wow, I didn't expect that guy to do anything. They're capable of all that. They're capable of a lot of good. So I'm not sitting here saying, oh, they're a crappy team and they're overrated. No, I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying they pretty much have a choice. Do they want to be a team that abides inferior teams and gives those teams, Minnesota, Northwestern, and in my opinion, Purdue, chances to get back in games? Or do you want to be a team that just rips the guts out of opposing teams like Ohio State did at the beginning of the game at Illinois, at Rutgers, uh, at Wisconsin, another case. So I'm just at this point in time going to stop deluding myself that what my lying eyes have seen throughout the season is a mirage. It's not a mirage. We keep seeing it. So that's who they are. I guess they're like all of us. They're good sometimes and bad sometimes. So in basketball terms, they have to strive to be more perfect. That doesn't help you when you're a uh, person of faith, striving to be perfect is a losing proposition, but in basketball, you should strive to be perfect all the time, and they are not. So we'll see what we get today against Purdue. Purdue has beaten Ohio State twice, and for Ohio State to win this game, they're going to have to get the ball into either the post or the mid-range and score there to get better looks on the perimeter. In the game at West Lafayette, Ohio State played without E.J. Liddell and lost by seven. I think that's actually a pretty good performance because Purdue's huge inside with Travion Williams and some seven-foot-two freshman kid. So they got size at the rim. That's the other thing, by the way. Minnesota played without Liam Robbins, who of all the big guys that's played Ohio State this year, Garza, Coburn, Hunter Dickinson, and of all the success those guys at times had. Nobody had more success than Liam Robbins of Minnesota, and he didn't play. He was out with an ankle sprain, or Ohio State probably would have lost that game. So today, Travion Williams, big-time factor for Purdue. And the other freshman kid off the bench, big-time factor for Purdue. E.J. Liddell's got to be a man today. 11 points 
in his only game against Purdue. Not good enough. Ohio State's other bigs haven't been very good against Purdue either. Kyle Young, in two games against Purdue, Kyle Young has 13 points. In two games. Zed Key, in two games against Purdue, eight points. So they need way more out of their posts because if you're not getting it out of the post, then where are you getting it? Perimeter. And What does that mean? You're probably getting it from three. And when Ohio State lost to Purdue at home, when they had E.J. Liddell, they shot more three-point shots than they did two-point shots. Now, I distinctly remember Chris Holtman's reaction after that game and how upset he was with Ohio State's shot selection. And basically, Purdue like dangled the bait of three-pointers, and Ohio State took the bait. And I do not think Ohio State will go into this game today without Chris Holtman, Ryan Peden, Terry Johnson, the rest of the staff telling them over and over and over again, get into your offense, move the ball, get it into the post, get it back outside, get it back into the post, make Purdue move its feet. Because if they come down and settle for threes all day long, I don't think they're going to shoot it well enough at Lucas Oil Stadium, cavernous Lucas Oil Stadium. I don't think they're going to shoot it well enough to win the basketball game. So Purdue's a very moderately talented basketball team. Uh, I'm pretty honest with you in my assessment of talent when I say Illinois got way better talent than Ohio State. Michigan's got way better talent and pieces than Ohio State. Uh, I think Iowa has some difficult pieces. Iowa's like the island of misfit toys, but it's like the vacation island of misfit toys. Their pieces fit together really well, and Garza's the perfect guy for them to put a bunch of three-point shooters around. So I don't think on a guy-by-guy basis, Iowa necessarily has better players than Ohio State, but they got a big piece that if Ohio State had a Garza, well, now you're really talking about something. But Purdue does not have better players than Ohio State. But Purdue, like Ohio State, wins because it has an outstanding coach. And so it's a battle of wits today between Matt Painter and Chris Holtman. And I would put those guys... Right up at the top, it would be a dogfight as to who's the best tactical coach in the Big Ten. You have to give Izzo his due because of all uh, of all his Final Fours. Uh, I think Greg Gard at Wisconsin, as much as I don't like him, does a phenomenal job and finds the right guys for his system. And I think Painter and Holtman are terrific. Um, and I will never say anything good about Juwan Howard's coaching, although what Michigan runs is pretty doggone impressive, too. So... As I refresh my throat with a little uh, beverage, let's get to the other side of the equation, which is a team that does not do very well, and that is the Indiana Hoosiers. Yes, it's time for me to smile and to stop obsessing because Indiana lost its Big Ten tournament debut last night to Rutgers. First, a word. Oh, my Hoosier faithful. They wish they could get a hold of my friends at Willis Spangler Starling today. They're uh, needing an attorney to get them out of the $10 million buyout that is in Archie Miller's contract. And Willis Spangler Starling's good, but I'm pretty sure Archie's agent wrote that contract airtight. So not even Willis Spangler Starling can help you, Indiana Hoosier fans. But the rest of you, remember, Willis Spangler Starling for your legal needs. Workers' comp, wills estate planning, probate, personal injury. Uh, employment law, Willis Spangler Starling, all over it. They are the attorney firm of choice for Bruce Hooley, for the Bruce Hooley Show, and for the We Tackle Life podcast. So make it happen when you need something good to happen legally in the protection of or in the pursuit of your legal rights with Willis Spangler Starling. They are online at willisattorneys.com. Yes, Archie Miller has a $10 million buyout. $10 million. Whoo, that's a lot of corn some Indiana farmer is going to have to grow to foot that bill. Is there a deep desire on the part of the Indiana fan base to part with Archie Miller? Yes, there is. Because last night they lost to Rutgers, 61-50, to and Indiana had a 50-49 to lead. So they get outscored at the end, 12 to nothing. They do not make a field goal in the last, essentially, 10 minutes. And this is who Indiana has been. Under Archie Miller all four seasons, they do not shoot it well, which is really odd because Archie Miller shot it great when he was a player. If Archie Miller's players could shoot like Archie Miller could, Indiana would be really good. 
But for some odd reason, where kids grow up shooting at baskets on barns and in city parks and all throughout the state of Indiana, aspiring to be the next Larry Bird or the next Oscar Robertson, both of whom came from Indiana, uh, wow, they can't shoot it. And they go through long stretches of time without scoring. And the Lucas Oil Stadium crowd started chanting as the Hoosiers scoring woes mounted last night, Fire Archie. Fire Archie. Whoa, that's not good in Indianapolis to have a Hoosier crowd chanting Fire Archie. Here's the tale of the tape. Four years in, he's 67 and 58. He's nine games over 500, essentially two games over 500 a year. They were 20 and 12 last year, so there's eight of the games over 500. So they're essentially a 500 team three out of four years. This year, they're 12 and 15. They were 12 and nine. They lost their last six. He's 11 games under 500 in the Big Ten. Of course he is. He's one and six against Rutgers. He's one and seven against Ohio State. He's never beaten Purdue. Whoa. He's had oddly good success against Izzo in Michigan State, but Michigan's dominated Archie Miller too, and so has Wisconsin. Those are the teams you most likely have to beat to contend. They haven't, so they haven't. They haven't beaten them, so they haven't contended. Okay. Um, He said after the game, Archie Miller, uh, I am not worrying about whether I'm going to be back. We're in a good spot, speaking of his program, and we'll be fine. Or maybe he was speaking of his buyout. Ten million bucks in his pocket if Indiana gets rid of him, and he'll get another job. He's Sean Miller's brother at Arizona, so Sean would give him a job on the Wildcats staff, but I think there'd be small conference schools that would gladly hire Archie Miller because he did a great job at Dayton. And I've said many times, when Indiana got Archie Miller a month or two ahead of Ohio State firing Thad Mata, I was not happy because I thought he'd do a great job. And you know what? He might have done a great job at Ohio State. Indiana is a challenging place to operate because they think it's still 1976 and you ought to be able to go 32-0 every year. And guess what? Nobody's gone unbeaten in a college basketball season since that team went 32-0 in 1976. And so the pressure to do it is outlandish with what's possible in this era of basketball. Bob Knight didn't have to worry about guys leaving early for the NBA. Bob Knight didn't have to worry about the three-point shot. Bob Knight didn't have to worry about Gonzaga and Baylor and teams like that coming out of other parts of the country. He had to worry about basically Kentucky and UCLA. That was the totality of schools that could probably win a national championship back then or maybe an ACC team. So basketball is a lot deeper. And it's changed dramatically since then. That's why teams haven't gone undefeated since then. Not even the great UNLV teams with Grandmama went undefeated. They lost to Duke in the Final Four. I was there to watch it. Broke my heart. But anyway, so you operate with crazy expectations at Indiana. Back when Knight was playing, he got whoever he wanted in the state of Indiana. Now you got to deal with Butler. You got to deal with Xavier. You got to deal with. Ohio State, you got to deal with Michigan, Michigan State. Michigan State gets Aaron Henry out of Indiana. I mean, it's, you know, a lot more competitive now. So I say all this because I'm trying to tell you who's your fans. Don't fire Archie Miller. Stick with him. We like him over there at Indiana. <laughs> Greg Doyle, the Indianapolis Star last night, wrote his column and tweeted his column after the game with, uh, the only thing Indiana basketball is able to do is frustrate the heck out of you. And I, I responded to that. I said, not me. He's given me everything I want. So at any rate, uh, do I think they'll fire him? I think it's 50-50. If you're going to fire Archie Miller, and let me just say this, I do think it would be, if I were Indiana's athletic director and if I weren't like somebody who wanted the worst for Indiana basketball, I would still probably keep him. I would keep him because they don't have $10 bucks to throw around. Oh, some booster donates it. Okay, fine. But here's the thing. You always have to say, if you're going to get rid of this guy, who do you get? Now, if I'm Indiana's athletic director, I'd make one call. And not to Brad Stevens. No. I'd make one. Because I don't think Brad Stevens is leaving the Celtics for Indiana. Because 
looks at, he looks and sees what happens to Archie Miller, and he's like, mm, no thanks. I'd make one call, and I'd make it to John Beeline. If John Beeline would want the job, I'd pull the trigger on Archie Miller because I think John Beeline's phenomenal. And as an Ohio State fan and as an Indiana hater, I don't want John Beeline in Indiana. I thought John Beeline at Michigan, I laughed when they hired John Beeline because I thought he's not going to get a single kid out of the Detroit Public League. And I don't know that he did. But he recruited a different kind of player. And man, his player development at Michigan is ridiculous. Thank you, John Sanderson, former Ohio State Buckeye, for causing me all that pain over the years by developing players at Michigan. And I would imagine, I don't know if Sanderson would leave Michigan to go to Indiana. I wish he'd leave Michigan to go to Ohio State because John Sanderson's flat out getting it done as the player development director at Michigan. But if I could get John Beeline, I'd make the I'd make the change. If I couldn't get John Beeline, I mean, sure, if I could get Brad Stevens, I would. Brad Stevens made enough money with the Celtics, he probably doesn't need to make a crap ton at Indiana. Uh, but I don't know that Brad Stevens would do any better at Indiana than Archie Miller. I think Archie might be okay if they give him a little bit more time. Here's the problem. You're going to lose a couple guys this year who were starters, and you're I would assume certainly going to lose Trace Jackson Davis, who's their best player. And so if you are going to lose uh, Trace Jackson Davis and you're going to lose your best uh, guards, well, what are you going to be next year? So if you're committing to Archie Miller in the future, you're kind of committing to not just one year but two years. And that's tough. That's tough. So we'll see uh, what Indiana does, but uh, it was – um, hey, enjoy it while you can. It's a good mantra in life. And they are down, and they are mad, and they are flummoxed, and they are angst-ridden. And so life is good for those of us who enjoy watching the candy pants suffer. All right. Now to the agenda that Ohio State's athletes are in support of. First, a reminder that my wife, you'd think my wife is on top of everything, right? She's a tax accountant. She knows everything that's going on out there in terms of things that affect people's income and all that. My wife was shocked to learn last night that we can get our health insurance changed right now in the month of March. She's like, no, open enrollment ended in December. Oh, honey, this is one instance where I am smarter than you because I know that Joe Biden signed an executive order that reopened open enrollment. And so, hey, we're going to have AUI Info look at our health insurance. I thought my wife was happy with what we have. She's not necessarily happy with what we have. And so we are going to today log on to AUIinfo.com and ask them about health insurance options because open enrollment is there. So if you plan to get new health insurance or look at your health insurance in December and you didn't do it because the holidays are a busy time and you were unaware that you could do it now in March, well, do what I'm going to do today. Go to auinfo.com, click on the chat. Actually, I don't even think you have to click on it. I think they'll go, hey, can I help you? You can call them on a Zoom call. You can call them on the phone. You can go meet with them in person if you want to, but they're the ones. And by the way, they don't charge you a penny. They are compensated by the health insurance companies that they align you with. And they want to get paid, so they don't have one, two, three, ten health insurance companies they'll put you with. They'll put you with anybody. I'll put you with anybody. You're already paying for a health insurance consultant. Take advantage of it. Log on, auiinfo.com, and tell them you heard about it on the We Tackle Life podcast. Okay. Read a story yesterday, and this is where, you know, I talked the other day about how sometimes sports, politics, and faith intersect. And so we're going to be transitioning into the faith portion of the podcast soon. But first, a little uh, news event that Ohio State athletes are a part of. I saw a story yesterday from Sports Illustrated, um, Maven, which I used to work for. So I'm very familiar with the management and the agenda that they want to push. Uh, I think I speak from experience on that. Um, you can also factor in that in the last swimsuit issue, though I didn't see it, I read about it, they put a transgender model on the front of Sports Illustrated. Okay. I think a lot of people were like, I think I assume a lot of people are like me. Six months ago, I would not, I would not have passed a test 
on the nuances of transgenderism. It was like one of those topics that I fell victim to the fear that if I said something incorrect, I would inadvertently say something that wackos would pounce upon and use to cancel me. Although I'm pretty uncancelable, <laughs> given who I work for and how I just really don't care what other people think. So here's a little informative conversation that you may already know, but there, trust me, people listening to this podcast right now who don't know this. When you hear the word transgender, transgender means that someone has not had a sex change. Okay, They have not had biological reassignment surgery. A transgender person is someone who is born one way, male or female, male anatomy, female anatomy, but they identify in their head, they think, I have a male anatomy, I have male bone structure, I have male testosterone, but I'm really a girl. So you may be out at a restaurant, I've had transgender uh, women, which is a male dressing as a woman, transgender women, wait on me, dudes in dresses. Um, I've not, uh, and then there are a lot of times you'll see somebody, remember, remember, this is how different society is now. Remember SNL back in the days had, uh, the character Pat, who people were never sure if Pat was a man or Pat was a woman. Well, uh, you may see some people who you think are men but they are actually biologically women. That's a transgender man, biological female. So the way with transgender, look at the last word, male or female. I'm a transgender man. Okay, you're really a girl. You're really a girl. If you transgender male, uh, transgender female, you're really a guy. Okay, so that's your primer on transgenderism. Okay. Ohio State athletes are among the 550 athletes nationwide who have signed a petition sent to the NCAA saying, we will not play in any NCAA-sanctioned event. Playoff game in football, basketball tournament game, um, swimming and diving championships, lacrosse, soccer games, soccer tournaments. We will not play our sport in any state where they are passing or thinking of passing, discussing, talking about, passing legislation that would ban transgender athletes from playing a sport in the uh, category of sex that they identify. So in other words, what these athletes, including athletes from Ohio State, are saying is that if you're a guy and you identify as a girl, you're a transgender woman, a man, male anatomy, male bone structure, male testosterone levels, but you feel a, feel you're a woman, believe you're a woman, you think you ought to be able to play girls' soccer. You think you ought to be able to play girls' basketball. You think you ought to be able to, to run girls' track, to swim in a girls' swimming race. These athletes are saying these kinds of state laws that are being promulgated, put forth, passed in Idaho and Mississippi to keep men and women biologically competing in their biological category. We are against that. We want men who believe they're women to be able to play women's sports. That's what the athletes are saying. So I don't know how the NCAA is going to treat this. I would tell them to pound sand. I would tell them, tough, don't play. Go away. We don't need you. Because here is the truth. It is inarguably, I'm saying it's inarguable that men have an advantage generally over women. Does that mean that there's not a woman that could beat me one-on-one -on -one in basketball? Of course there is. But as a rule, a 20-year-old male is going to have bigger bone structure, more muscle mass, faster twitch muscle fibers than a 20-year-old female. Okay, I'll just give you a little my Bruce Hooley prove it moment here. Okay. So the other day I'm covering a state semifinal in girls basketball and I'm talking to the coach of the winning team and I'm like, what did you do to prepare for this game? And she's like, oh, we got our girls scrimmage against boys from our school who don't play basketball. And so when they get down in a game, she says, so when they get down in practice, we tell them how, you know, we coach them because this team that I cover, Fort Loramie girls, uh, never, never, hardly ever trails in a game. Well, they covered it. They played a tournament game in the regionals where they were down 10 
And I asked the coach, I'm like, you know, you guys win every game you play pretty much except for one. And I said, your girls aren't very often in a, in a situation where they're used to being behind. And a lot of teams panic in that situation. Why didn't you panic? And she's like, because we practice against boys from our school who don't play basketball. So they practice against not the bas boys' basketball team, but against dudes who aren't good enough or aren't engaged in playing basketball. And those guys beat a team that I believe tomorrow is going to win the state championship in Division Four in girls' basketball. That's one example. I'll give you another one. Back in 1993, Ohio State women's basketball team, runner-up in the nation. Katie Smith, freshman, awesome. You know Katie's career. She's phenomenal. So that team finished second in the nation, beaten by Cheryl Swopes and Texas Tech in the national championship game. That was back in a different media era where you could go and watch practice. And the Ohio State women's basketball team practiced, uh, I think, from two to four. And the men's team practiced from four to six. Well, every, almost every day in practice, the Ohio State women's basketball team that finished second in the nation practiced against the Ohio State men's basketball managers. Shout out Spanky. I remember Spanky from back then and the other managers. And those guys who were, you know, I'm sitting there watching it. I I can tell a really good basketball player. I'm covering a Division I college basketball team in the Big Ten from four to six, watching the men practice. The Spanky-led Ohio State men's basketball managers spanked the Ohio State women on the scoreboard every single day. Every single day. The women could not compete with marginally talented male basketball players. So it is ridiculous, ridiculous for people to contend that men do not have an athletic advantage over women. I, as you know, am the father of three daughters. All three of my daughters play sports. I will not allow my daughters to go on a playing field if they are playing against a transgender girl, a male anatomically competing against my daughters. Why? Not because I'm bigoted and I have anything against the transgender person, because I love my daughters and I will not put them in a situation where they can be physically injured by competing against a bigger, stronger athlete who is not of their anatomy. I just won't do it. I will pull my daughter off the soccer field. I will pull my daughter off the basketball court. I will not allow it to happen because my role as a father is to protect my daughters. I have nothing against transgender people. Nothing. Uh, as a forgiven child of God, I am called to love everyone. My enemies, which I do a rotten job of that, um, but people who are trapped in a biological disconnect, a mental disorder, yes, transgenderism, gender dysphoria, however you want to term it, is a mental disorder. Just like anorexia is a mental disorder. I've used the example many times. You'd never tell an anorexic person, yeah, you ought to get stomach stapling. You are fat. You'd really, you know, you do need to lose 10 pounds. We would never say that to a to an anorexic or bulimic person. That would be a horrible thing to tell them. And we tell that to kids who are detached mentally from their biological reality. We tell that to kids all the time. We have government officials. Rachel Levine, who's actually a man, uh, second in command at HHS, um, advocating for puberty blockers for kids in school without their parents knowing it. Look it up. It's true. So... That's what the Ohio State athletes have done. Okay, so that brings me into the faith portion of the podcast because uh, this really troubles me. This really troubles me. It troubles me on many levels. It troubles me on how do I respond as a Christian to this? How do I respond in love? Yet how do I respond in truth? We are to respond in love, yet we are to, Ephesians 6.10, stand for truth against error. We are to not be ashamed. We are to not be ashamed of the gospel. The gospel offers forgiveness to everyone. It offers restoration to everyone. I don't even think I don't even think transgenderism is a sin. I mean, I'm just kind of going off the cuff here, but to me, transgenderism is a is a temptation. Transgenderism is the work of Satan. Transgenderism is a 
twisting of the mind, and Satan is the god of this age. He blinds the eyes of unbelievers. I believe he is tormenting people who are gripped with this gender confusion. I believe this is the work of Satan. And, and you, can, you can laugh at that if you're not a Christian, but here, let me reason that out for you, okay? I'm a Christian, so I believe in a sovereign God. I believe in a God who is all-knowing, all-wise, all-powerful, omnipresent. He's everywhere. I believe I'm created in the image of God. I believe all people are created in the image of God. So if I believe in an all-sovereign God, an all-powerful God, an all-knowing God, who created everyone, then I have to believe that that is a God who doesn't make mistakes. So if you're born a man, if you're born a woman, you have a male anatomy, a female anatomy, and you feel like, well, I should be a girl or I should be a man, that's not, God is not making a mistake having you born as a man or born as a woman and then, oh, oops, sorry, I goofed up. That's not of God. That's a dark, evil, satanic force in the world that is, that is attacking you and twisting your reality. Um, so that is why I believe that, because I believe in a sovereign God who loves me. God is love. He doesn't love me more because I'm obedient than he does when I'm disobedient. His love for me is fixed. That's a hard concept. It was hard for me to grasp for a while. It's hard for a lot of people to grasp. God loves everyone, but God cannot be untrue to himself and his nature, which is pure holiness. So he can love you and he can send you to hell because you won't submit to his love for you and accept Christ at the cross and Christ's forgiveness. I have no problem reasoning all that out, and I'd love to have a conversation with any of you who can't make sense of how does a loving God send people to hell? Well, I just explained it quickly, but I'd be more than happy to reason that out with you because God cannot corrupt his own nature, which is perfection. We are imperfect. Christ at the cross provides a way for us to be viewed as perfect in God's eyes. And so I don't believe transgenderism is a sin any more than I believe being tempted uh, with same-sex attraction is a sin. It's not a sin. It's a temptation. Jesus was tempted in the desert, but he did not sin. So temptation is not sin. We're all tempted. God gives us through the Holy Spirit and dwelling us inside through the power of the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, the Bible says, is the Holy Spirit inside of us gives us that power to triumph over temptation, to triumph over the devil's attacks. And I think transgenderism is one of those attacks from Satan, which he's using. But he's also poisoning our culture with people who say, there's nothing wrong with this. You should honor it. Give them hormone blockers. Give them sexual reassignment surgery. So here is what I was reading in the Bible today. I was in the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, because the book of Mark, I, I was thinking the other day, I got to read the Gospels. I've read Acts, I've read Romans, I read Proverbs every day. I want to read the Gospels because that's where Jesus speaks directly, and all four of the Gospels are um, offer different perspectives on Jesus' ministry. So I, I thought to myself, you know, I don't really, I couldn't, probably couldn't quote very many verses from the book of Mark. I can quote Matthew and Luke and John, but I, the book of Mark's probably the most underrated gospel, I was thinking in my mind. So let's read Mark. So I'm reading Mark, and there's something that stands out in me, to me in the book of Mark so far, and I'm only through Mark 6. And that is a phrase that used to come up when um, um, the NBA used to have a motto, and the motto on TV, its marketing slogan was, Where Amazing Happens. NBA basketball, where amazing happens. Shout out to Greg Brenda, who snarks me on Twitter all the time. But Greg Brenda planted that seed in my mind many years ago when we worked together in Cleveland. Greg brought that up. He's like, that's one of the greatest slogans of all time, where NBA basketball, where amazing happens. And he was right. He was right. He's wrong about politics, but he's right about that. So um, the book of Mark refers to amazement a lot. And let me just give you a couple snippets of when the book of Mark talks about amazement. In Mark 5, there's a story uh, where Jesus goes out. He's on his ministry, and this guy comes up to him. And this is a guy who's like a crazy person. And he's, uh, he lives in a cemetery. He's a nut. He's a nut job. It says in Mark 5, verse 4, He had often been chained hand and foot, but tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. This is a crazy dude. Like, this is a guy you walk around. You don't go through the cemetery for this guy. You walk around the cemetery. So Jesus 
has this encounter with this guy, and this guy says, uh, and the demons inside this guy, he's demon-possessed, cry out to Jesus, what do you want with us? Leave us alone. And Jesus, and they're like, they beg Jesus, don't banish us. There's a herd of pigs there, 2,000 pigs. And they beg Jesus, send us into those pigs. Don't, don't, don't banish us to the abyss. So Jesus sends them into the pigs, and the pigs run down a hillside into the ocean and drown. And all the people there saw this. And those who had seen it told the people. So people come out from. So this guy then, after he's freed of these demons, he's like a normal guy. He's like a regular, passive, uh, peaceful guy. And he goes into town, and people look at him, and they go, well, that's the crazy guy. Watch out. But they're like, no, he's not acting crazy. What's his deal? He's like, he's like a different person. What happened? So they all go out to the cemetery to kind of figure out, like, what happened to this dude? And the people who were with Jesus who saw this happen, they tell him, hey, Jesus told the demons inside this guy to go into the pigs, and the pigs ran down the hillside, and, and they drown. And it says that people who saw what had happened to the demon-possessed man told them, told the people from town about it, and told them about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. Get out of here. I mean, like, he did this amazing miracle, and they're like, dude, get out of here. So the guy who's healed of freed of the demons comes up to Jesus and says, hey, I'm following you. Wherever you go, I'm going. And Jesus goes, no, no. Go to your family. Go into town. Tell them what the Lord has done for you and how, how much he's had mercy on you. And so the guy goes into town and he starts telling everybody about this. And here's the word in Mark 5, verse 20. So the man went away and began to tell in Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. They were amazed. There's that word, amazed. So then later on in Mark 5, Jesus healed. Jesus brings back to life a girl who had died. A girl who had died. He goes into this house. People go, oh, you're too late. She died. Jesus goes, Jesus, no, she's not dead. She's just asleep. And they're like, you don't even know. She's dead. What are you, crazy? And Jesus goes up and he says, hey, get up. Get up, little girl. Get up. And she gets up. And what happened? Mark 5, verse 42. Immediately, the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished astonished. So we have two instances of amazement in Mark 5. And then we have more. We have more because Jesus continues teaching. Mark 6. He goes back to his hometown, back to Nazareth, and he goes into the synagogue and he starts teaching. And the people are like, hey, this guy's really good, but but isn't he like Jesus the carpenter? Isn't he Joseph's son? Like, where did he get all this? Where did he get all this wisdom? How did he become so good? He's a carpenter. Like, I know him. I know his dad. I know his mom. I know his sisters. I know his brothers. Who is it? Who is this? And they start to get a little bit ticked off about it. It's like, who's this guy think he is? Like, he's up there, like, lecturing to us, telling us what to do, telling us how to live life, telling us the meaning of life. Who is this guy? And yet there were others who were like, Oh, this is deep. I've never heard it put that way. I've never like been, wow. Mark 6, verse 2. When the Sabbath came, Jesus began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. So they were amazed at his teaching. So the people who saw him heal this demon-possessed guy were amazed. And the people in the town who the demon-possessed guy, now calm, now lucid, now passive, who told what Jesus did for him, those people were amazed. And now the people in the synagogue in his hometown are hearing Jesus and they're amazed. And then the other people who are hearing him teaching are not happy about it. And they think, who is this guy? Who is this carpenter dude up there telling us what to do? And it says in Mark 6, verse 5, Jesus laments that... Um, 
Only in my hometown, only in his hometown, among his relatives and in his own house is a prophet without honor. In other words, I'm trying to tell these people whom I love, who I grew up with. I'm trying to share the truth of the gospel with them. I'm trying to show them the key to eternal life. And they don't appreciate it because a prophet in his hometown is not respected. So it says he could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And Jesus was amazed at their lack of faith. So what amazes man is the gospel in action. Jesus healing a demon-possessed person. Jesus raising a girl from the dead. A demon-possessed man now healed, going into town and telling people about his restoration. Those are the things that amaze man at the gospel in action, at Christ's power, at God's love in action. But what amazes God? It's not his ability to restore us. I find that amazing. What amazes God is their lack of faith. That's what amazes God. Our lack of faith amazes God. God's provision for us amazes us. And he asks our response to his love, to his healing, to his compassion to his provision. He asked for our response to that to be our amazement, our absolute stunned reaction that a holy God of the universe could love us so much that he would accept us because of what someone else, his son Jesus Christ, did for us at the cross. And when we say no to that, when we insist that we know better than he does, when we insist that you're not all sovereign God, people who were born male, they should really have been female. So you're a God of mistakes. You're a God of imperfection. You don't even really exist. When that is our reaction to the love of God, that's when he's amazed. That's when he's amazed. And when that is our reaction, though we may feel that we are in control, though we may feel that we are telling God what to do, though we may feel and act that God is not real, it does not change the reality that God is very real. And God created each one of us unique and special and loves each one of us with an endless love. And yet he is so amazing that when we reject his love and reject his sovereignty in our life, he banishes us to the abyss because he wants to have fellowship with us and he wants us to be with him. And he's provided a way through Christ. But God is always going to be true to himself, to his nature, to his pristine holiness, to his incorruptibility. And so if we amaze him by failing to be amazed at his love for us, he will have to reject us at the end. And every single person in this life must make that choice for themselves. You cannot be acceptable in God's sight because your parents were wonderful people and went to church every week. You cannot be acceptable in God's sight because you go to church every week. You cannot be acceptable in God's sight because you give to the poor, because you are less of a imperfect person than the person down the street, because you never killed anyone, because you never cheated on anyone, because you never betrayed anyone. You can only be acceptable in God's sight if you realize that you are unacceptable in your own strength and that you yet have the opportunity to claim Jesus Christ's perfection at the cross for your own. That is why every person in this world will be judged by the choice they make about what to do with Jesus Christ. To accept him and to trade your imperfection for Christ's perfection in the eyes of God, or to stand on your own merits and wind up lacking. I certainly pray that all of you 
realize the gravity of that decision and realize the gravity of the immediacy of that decision. Today, this minute, this second, is the time for you to reconcile that decision in your life because you do not know if you are going to be given one more breath or one more heartbeat. And I don't say that to scare you. I say that to compel you to welcome the love of Jesus into your heart and into your life. And that is my fondest hope for you. Because I wandered around and tried to do it on my own for 30 plus years, and it was an empty way to live. Um, I have recently been engaged in an endeavor at church where we're learning how to share our faith better. And what we do is we pick two words that describe our life before Christ, two words to describe our life after Christ, and then we connect those four words with a gospel statement. So this is mine. I, I, I grew up striving to be perfect so that I would have peace about my eternal destiny. But once I looked to see what Jesus had to say about that, I realized that he did everything for me, and I didn't have to do anything. And that allows me to live joy and confidence and forgiveness. That's my wish for you. Thanks for your time today. Appreciate you watching. And I may do a podcast tomorrow to talk about Ohio State Purdue. We shall see. Everybody have a great day. Thank you for your time. Send me an email. We tackle life at gmail.com. Review me on iTunes. Patronize the sponsors. Thanks so much. Talk to you soon.